0: My name is Abhay Dandekar and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hi, everyone. On this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with the president of Nairal Pro-Choice America, Minnie Timaraju. Stay tuned. Well, as we're in another December, it's always a good time to reflect and be grateful. And first and foremost, thank you for listening to this and for sharing it with your friends and family, for rating, downloading, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhay So I'm always appreciative of any reminders of freedom. The examples can be both ubiquitous and so subtle that we can sometimes take for granted the freedom of self-expression, of worshiping, of voting, So I'm thankful and hopeful for everyone to live with self-determination, fueled by the human right to make personal choices with dignity and safety. These rights are foundationally protected by laws and policies and supported by lawmakers, but sometimes the pendulums of power can skew this away from advancing and protecting rights, squeezing away choices and freedoms, especially for the already vulnerable and marginalized. In the US, this has particularly been true this past year for reproductive freedom, abortion rights, family leave, and pregnancy discrimination, so I was thrilled to catch up with my friend, Minnie Timaraju, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. Minnie has been a campaigner, a high-impact organizer, and a talented coalition builder with over 20 years of experience leading advocacy efforts focusing on civil rights, diversity inclusion, gender justice, and reproductive rights. Her legal, governmental, political, corporate, and activism journey has seen her serving as the women's vote director on the 2016 Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, serving as executive director of the diversity, equity, and inclusion team for the Comcast Corporation, and recently advising the Biden-Harris administration on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. Now, central in her career has been a commitment to fighting for access to the full range of safe reproductive health care, including her work at Planned Parenthood, and now for the past year as president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. Not to forget that she's also a parent herself, and along with her husband, is raising almost four-year-old twin boys, keeping them all very busy and engaged. Now, Minnie and I went to college together at Berkeley, so it was nice to reconnect, especially just as the Georgia Senate runoff election was happening. So in chatting about it all and given the disruptions to reproductive freedom and abortion rights this past year, I wanted to first know her reflections from this recent midterm election cycle.
1: You know, so I celebrated right around the election, I celebrated my one year anniversary in this job as president of NARAL pro-choice America. And um, I was the first, I am the first person of color and the first and very much the first person of South Asian descent in this role with everything going on in the world, but in particular with the fall of Roe and, you know, the over, and the Dobbs decision, we knew coming in to this election that abortion was going to be a driver for the electorate. We knew frankly, as early as the Kansas ballot initiative in in August that our hunch was correct, that the data and research and polling our organization along with many others in the reproductive rights movement have been doing for decades. We've always known that eight out of 10 Americans, majority of Americans support reproductive freedom. And that includes access to abortion. We didn't have proof points. You know, you can have polling you can do research, but as you know, there's always the possibility of bias and there's no more accurate poll than an actual election. So after Kansas, we knew that our bet was correct, that it was a winning issue. And the majority of folks, even in a red state like Kansas, were, gonna, were with us. Uh, and that really took our entire effort and blew it up in a really, frankly, positive way. So, yeah. you know, um, about six months ago, maybe longer, right before the Alito leak, my colleagues at Planned Parenthood and Emily's List and I, our, my, my team came together and made a $150 million commitment for the election. Yeah. We knew what was coming and we knew we had to be ready for it. But after Kansas, everyone else knew what was coming and started listening to us. Like we'd already been out in the field, like coaching and candidates and talking to elected officials. Some of the folks you've had on your show, hey, this is coming, this is coming. Here's how you talk about it. Here's how you engage voters on it. And they were like, oh, okay, let's see. But when, so it was like a one, two, three punch. The leak made everyone go, whoa, it's really happening. The decision made everyone wake up that it happened. And then Kansas made everyone realize abortion is a winning issue. Yeah. Which is the case we've been trying to make as a movement for decades. And you know, as well as anyone that, you know, there's folks in the moderate middle and to the right who are like, it's a scary issue. It's a dangerous issue. It's polarizing. We let the narrative, you know, be captured by the extremists on the other side. So it's a long-winded way of answering your question, but the election, what it meant to me and what it meant to our organization, what it meant to the movement was a realization of decades of work but in the wake of something really horrific. Right? I mean, we we had a big victory on election day. I think we're gonna have a big victory today in Georgia with Senator Warnock, uh, Senator Reverend Warnock. But uh, what we did was we outperformed expectations. You know, it was supposed to be a red wave election. What we were able to do is beat back a lot of really scary, bad candidates and defeat a lot of ballot initiatives that would have taken rights away and advance rights in some states. But there are still 17 states with abortion bans. Yeah. yeah. We can't change that. And we fell just short of winning back Congress. So we can't codify Roe. We can't expand access at the federal level. And the president and his administration can only do so much without Congress. Yeah. So basically, you know, we showed that we had a messaging and electoral ability to win. But we have to win at the federal level, we have to we have much more work to do. And at the state and local level, it's really just beginning so look it was a huge boost for us as a movement but as folks who care more about the work and less about the wins and the punditry yeah it wasn't enough right it's a mixed bag like i feel proud of my team but we also have to keep reminding democrats don't take your foot off the gas this has to be your top issue going into 2024 and we have to have an even bigger win to really be able to affect change
0: I wonder if it's sort of like, it's great fuel for motivation. You have the proof yes. and you have a great strategy building now, but there's still some unfinished business, so to speak. Ton um, of it. Yeah.
1: Because even if we pass a federal, let's say we're able to codify Roe. The challenge is, and you know this as a physician, actually, I think you know more than probably your average listener. The problem is even with Roe, the Roe was always the floor, it wasn't the ceiling. Hmm. California is unique in that you've always had, well, not always, but for quite some time now, you've had an administration and a legislature willing to advance rights in California and fund abortion care. But in the vast majority of America, particularly in the red states, there aren't enough clinics, there aren't enough providers, and that's by design. And there's no funding, there's a federal, there's a ban on federal funding for abortion. So Medicare can't cover it, you know, so we have a huge crisis of care in this country. The folks who need the care the most can't get it.
0: You know, you mentioned that it was about a year ago, maybe a couple, about 13 months ago now, that you just joined as president of NARAL. Fighting for reproductive freedom as sort of your mission, do you remember your first day and sort of how you felt coming into this role? And, and I wonder how it feels to reflect on that now about a year later.
1: Yeah. I, it's so funny. Um, I don't remember my first day because my team roll. we had a rollout of my announcement, the announcement that I was president about a couple of weeks before I was actually, I actually started my first day.
0: It's more of a slow rollout or?
1: Yeah. Well, no, it was, um, you know what it was? We wanted, they wanted to make sure that People knew NARAL had a new president ah. before the Supreme Court oral arguments in Dobbs. So I don't remember my first day. I was probably working out of my home office in Philly like any other day. So it's hard to remember. Yeah. Sure. But I do remember what happened the first couple of weeks. And it was that I was at the Supreme Court, you know, not arguing the case because that's not what we do, but rallying outside of the court, you know, and speaking to a crowd and talking to the press and sitting down with reporters. And it was like my first interview with the New York Times. And I went from being like my whole career, um, I've been a behind the scenes person, like a chief of staff or a senior advisor, not the principal. So this was my sure. first like oh my gosh front and center I'm the camera. I'm the yeah. one being recruited. I better not screw it up. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, but I mean
1: oral-, oral most significant Supreme Court case in my career. I-,
0: I was gonna say that it it was like, you know, the spotlight can't be any brighter and in fact it did you feel almost like hey i i'm quite prepared for this i've been doing a lot of this stuff my whole career and and sort of it w- was that a natural for you to step into
1: so i think it's important you know uh, i've tr- thought about the answer to this question because i actually had someone else ask this of me recently i've decided as a woman of color i have to really own it yeah. right it's very it's very sort of i think hard for a lot of us to just own our success Yeah. There's always a feeling of like we were raised a certain way to sort of be modest, but we don't do any favors to other young people coming up behind us by not owning it, right? Correct. So I will say, yeah, I felt damn prepared. I was shocked. I mean, I remember thinking like, oh, this is going to be really hard, and then ending that day and being like, oh yeah, no, I knew all of this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I have been training candidates to speak to the press, and I've been coaching other people, and I've been drafting policy, and I've been editing talking points for others my whole career. So then when I got the chance to do it, it kind of did feel natural and I was very prepared and it's the bliss that comes from knowing you're in the right job at the right moment and how awesome is that? And I wish everybody has that in their career.
0: I was thinking about this and kind of reading and, you know, thinking about what NARAL stands for and in safeguarding and sort of fighting for reproductive rights and freedom. What does leading with openness and transparency and vulnerability mean to you?
1: It means everything. You know, I don't think in the current moment with the current crisis we're facing in this country, yeah, in the first time the majority of Americans have lost a constitutionally protected right, had the court take away a right that we've all known in our whole entire lives. Like, mm. you know, you and I are the same age range. Like Roe yeah. has been the law of the land um, roe became the law literally a month before I was born. You know, it's wild that we lost it, right? Right. So if you don't lead with transparency, vulnerability, openness, I think you can't do this kind of work because right. it is the kind of work where you're asking other people to be vulnerable. You know, like we're out there, you know, taking people's most horrific stories of pain and frustration, denial of civil human rights, amplifying those stories asking our elected officials to advocate for them, asking voters to stand up for them or stand up for themselves. You can't do that if you can't connect to people and you can't connect to people if they don't trust you. Yeah. And people don't trust you if you're not vulnerable and authentic and transparent. So you just can't be a good advocate if you're, if you're not those things.
0: Is it a kind of cyclical fuel and acceleration of power if you have all those things because you're able to be that much more empathic and compassionate and showing that very visibly. It's almost as if like you build momentum and strength, the power that you have of your message is in some ways kind of sort of multiplicative.
1: I think what you're talking about is what we would call movement building and power building. And we do yeah. that. And so, yes, So I think the answer is yes because ultimately the strength of any political cause is the strength of a movement behind it, right? So think about the biggest fundamental policy shifts we've had in our country from civil rights to immigrant rights, you know, the Americans with Disability Act, right? Some of the most transformative things to our society that we don't even need the existence of the EPA, you know, environmental protections overall. These all started as grassroots political movements where people themselves put their lives on the line, you know, agitated, activated. And those things only happen when, again, people feel you know, connected people feel like they can be vulnerable and they can put out their most intense outrage and pain yeah. and share that with broader groups. So, absolutely, like movement building only occurs through that kind of transformative people to people action.
0: You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with the president of NARAL Pro Choice America, Mini Timaraju. Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, Trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, I'm Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with Mini Timaraju. What do you think about the idea that there are some grassroots movements that are, they really build um, organizational strength and power through time, and then there are other dinner table conversations that are so, you know, abundant and ubiquitous throughout the country, but they, they sometimes never see the light of day.
1: You know, unfortunately, it takes sometimes a horrific event to catalyze. Our movement is a perfect yeah. example, but I'll, and I'll come to that in a minute, but I'll start with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. You know, folks have been mobilizing to support um, Black and brown communities um, who have been the victims of police and state-sponsored violence, not just in the United States, but globally, for decades, for eons, right? Yeah. This is not a new phenomenon. I mean, I remember talking about these issues when we were students at Berkeley, right. but you george floyd's horrific murder on camera to be the spark that turned hundreds of thousands of cases everything from trayvon martin to you know sandra bland moments of outrage that turned into thanksgiving and dinner table convos and then kind of quietly left it took george floyd to be the spark yeah that turned into the movement now the movement is incredibly, has been incredibly impactful, but in some ways has stalled, not because of the lack of sophistication or smarts behind the people behind the movement, but because, you know, in this current climate, it's hard to sustain outrage. Mm. It's hard to sustain momentum. You know, I think Black Lives Matter is now transforming into something longer, longer and more policy focused. And when you move into more of the policy work, it's harder to be you know, as close to the people in the streets. But they've done done an exceptional job and they're worth, like, paying attention to and following. And uh, we are certainly, like, very allied with them. The parallel for us is reproductive rights, health and justice organizations have been active. NARAL was formed before Roe v. Wade. We were originally the National Association to repeal. 69, I think, right? yeah, Yeah, to repeal laws. Because there were so many abortion laws, we were set up to repeal them. That was the original NARAL. yeah. National association repeal abortion laws and then Roe became law of the land but we never let up because we always knew Roe was the floor not mm. the ceiling. Sure. Roe only provided the legal right it didn't provide access so we as a movement have existed for a long time and we've been telling people since Planned Parenthood v Casey that we were losing momentum we were losing access and I, you know I'm in Texas I was from, tex- I'm from Texas yeah where we lost access prior to Roe falling and thousands of conversations, thousands of like Americans, particularly women, engaged in our movement. It was never, we were never able to pass a federal law. Yeah, We were never able to take that momentum and really flex. We were finally able to get the Democratic Party and a presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton in 2016, to stand up and say we shouldn't, the Hyde Amendment, which is the federal ban on, you know, federal funds for abortion right. needs to be eliminated. But that was just 2016, yeah, it never quite formally changed in 2016. So it took our 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 catalyzing moment was Roe falling was Dobbs. Yeah. So it takes sometimes that horrific thing that we've been warning everybody about for decades to happen. Yeah. For us to have a breakthrough that we did in the election.
0: It's it's interesting. I mean, I, I I actually that really resonates for me, this whole idea that you can't sustain outrage. And that you, you know it's hard. it's hard. It's very hard to sustain that. And so it 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 really does require sort of longitudinal testing and longitudinal, I think, strategy. And when you think about everyday conversations about sex education, about abortion, about birth control, about reproductive rights, about parental leave, these are all, you know, issues that are so important at that dinner table and yet they are are heavy lips for for many many communities and um, i mean it, it, there's no question there it's just more of a why no, you know it's
1: really intense stuff it's really hard to have a dinner table conversation actually yeah about nine of what you just said because you know especially in our community folks don't want to talk about some of these issues right right, right. i will say i i think it's hard i don't think it's impossible and I think part of and part of why what we're investing in significantly is organizing, and what I mean yeah. by that is the old school you know you know rolling up your sleeves, knocking on doors, having one on one conversations that's what any movement has to invest in because to sustain the outreach is hard, you have to convert the outrage into action. The good and bad news for our movement is that the extremists on the other side in these seventeen states. Will not stop at the current bans. They're going after contraception. They're going after IVF. Right. right. So we will have plenty of news to yeah. amplify and sustain outrage. It will be our movement's job to make sure press is covering it, to make sure activists are engaged on it, to make sure we're continuing to educate the American public about it.
0: Let me let me turn to something slightly different. You know, your particular journey, Minnie, has, has taken you through politics and law and organizing and uh, media, when do you personally first remember the ideas of advocacy and championing the cause of marginalized communities and the vulnerable? When when do you remember that being first very meaningful and, and those words being very meaningful to you?
1: Um I come from like many of us who are from India, I come from a family of activists. You know, let, you know my grandparents on both sides of my family were very active in the independence movement. Um and my aunts and uncles and cousins, you know, one of my uncles was a labor organizer, another one of my uncles was a journalist. So, you know, we went to India quite a bit when I was a child. Yeah. And my yeah. first political Conversations were in India hmm. with family members. And yeah. my role model of you can be an advocate, you can have a career as an advocate, whether it's through journalism or organizing, came from my mother's older brothers. Hmm. And my sense of economic justice and fairness and marginalized communities actually also came from India. I, I'm sure you have a similar story, but when you go home to India and you see the intense poverty yeah and you come back to the united states and you see the opulence and i think for most americans we don't even know that we're living in opulence right sure we're breathing air you know i used to always remember how quiet it felt in the suburbs of houston right when it comes to india because the cacophony in india is yeah. like it's crazy right yeah
0: it's like a contrast of sensory overload and all, the, all of a sudden there's an emptiness
1: right and i remember having early conversations with my parents about why yeah what's going on here why is it like that And why is it like this and having an early foundational understanding that there are people in the world who don't have what we have hmm. and yeah. there's a historical underpinning for that so we were talking about colonialism we were talking about you know, the developing world versus the first world. We were talking about, you know, how our our native lands were plundered by, you know, colon colonizers yeah. and how the United States and the industrial level, And I must have been like less than 10 when I was having this conversation. So, right. you know, my grandparents on both sides were in the beginning of their young lives, they were communists. Like, Yeah, you
0: know? yeah. this has kind of <laughs> been woven for you and baked in.
1: Right, for, like, yeah. for so many of us, right? Like, because yeah. India is still the world's largest but one of the youngest democracies in the world sure so so much when you know being i'm turning 50 next year so much of what my uncles were dealing with when i was a kid was just the tensions of a new democracy yeah and in retrospect like oh that was exciting because they were still figuring it out too um so i think it's in my dna but it was also in my ecosystem and
0: that's but i but i think that there's directions that people go in when it comes to saying, all right, hey, I I am committed to being a champion for others. And yeah. you lose sometimes, perhaps, or are you are sitting on the teeter totter constantly of like, okay, am I am I doing this because it's my life's work? Is there are there other avenues? But choosing that is if it's baked into your DNA, then it's a pretty easy and natural, you know, sort of path for you.
1: You know, though it's funny because it wasn't an easy natural it was easy and natural to a point. And then um, I went into corporate America for four years after Secretary Clinton lost her campaign for president. And I didn't think I was coming back to this. I thought, okay, mm. I was successful in corporate America. Yeah. I, I learned to code switch early on in my life. I was perfectly comfortable right. in making really good money. And I thought, this is it. This is what i want to do. Yeah. I didn't think I was coming back to this.
0: So when you think about that, right, all, every single one of those different arenas, the idea that this has been kind of baked into your DNA, the sort of formative experiences, both in the private sector, public sector um, in politics and organizing, you've come across people who clearly don't always think like you, and in the work you're doing now, how do you actually build movements and engage and and really sort of start leveraging conversations, sustained conversations, by the way? with people who don't agree with you, with people who don't necessarily share the same values that you have? How do you either start or maintain those kinds of conversations that, that are super difficult? And by the way, very much a part of our even South Asian community as well.
1: It all it all goes back to what we were talking about before about transparency and authenticity. You know, you have to connect with people um, with their humanity. And you know, the biggest challenge for movements like ours, but also Black Lives Matter, you know, also the struggle for undocumented kids to get the full sure. range of support. You have to make sure your opposition sees you as human. Yeah. And that is hard because we live in a society that is very much fundamentally built on white supremacy. And there's a full historical, and we learned this in college, we yeah. were lucky to go to college where I, this was not a new concept for me Um, at this stage of my career, where they aggressively dehumanize us. We live in a society where communities like ours are dehumanized and women are dehumanized and women are seen as almost collo- like chattel, right? Whether yeah. no matter how advanced we get, the fundamental reason why jobs became the law and Roe fell is because there's a desire by the extremist right to exert power control over others. And it sounds radical, but it's actually if you don't understand that, then you're you can't build a movement around it. Like if sure. you're thinking, I can compromise with a white supremacist. You probably can't. Yeah. we cannot. But I can share my humanity and my story, and I can make sure the majority of Americans who do believe in our fundamental freedoms understand the threats yeah. and connect to them. So it's about explaining to, you know, a white Republican suburban mom in Michigan, which we had to do a lot of this last cycle, Right. an abortion ban could affect her. And here's how, but it's also about giving hope to young college students or community college students of color in that same state, that this was a big fight that they could win and they wanted to be part of because this was going to the rest of their life. So it's like, how do you talk to, you create a movement, you need everybody, but you don't necessarily use the same strategies and tactics for all of them. The messages might be different. The strategies and tactics might be different, but the fundamental connection is we have to approach them with a sense of we see you and and the most basic organizing tactic is what's in it for me right Right. so if i'm talking to you i do have to make the case you know this affects you too and here's how it affects you
0: does that message ever become a challenge when you're also not a white woman from suburban michigan who's a maybe a purple or even a red republican
1: Yes, and I also want to be clear that we don't want to spend too much time communicating with white suburban women who are never going to be with us on this issue because they're too bought up and they're too bought into the patriarchal structure. So it's about talking to the broadest range of people and then whittling it down because you don't want to waste energy and time talking to folks you can't persuade. But to your point, yes and no. You know, one of the interesting things about being... Um, An Asian American immigrant, an Indian American immigrant, is we sort of live in the in between. I mentioned code switching before, you know, we've always been sort of seen as the other. Nobody thinks we're white, you know, that's, um, and the model minority myth is very problematic. Yeah. No one assumes we're white, Um, but we are often, based on our demographics and our immigration pattern, we've, many of us have grown up in majority white communities. So I learned early on like, okay, on the weekend I'm Indian and I'm like going to music class and I'm going to the temple and I'm, you know, doing these things. And in the weekdays I'm in class with a bunch of white kids, but I've made friends with the three black and two Hispanic and five, eight other Asian kids. We have a mini coalition, but we're going to survive in this white dominated society. So we kind of learned how to organize, you know, and you learn, but you also have to survive and assimilate, right? To be to be whole, so I also learned like even though my mom is a vegetarian, I learned how to eat a hamburger at McDonald's. Yeah, like right. I learned how to culturally adapt. All of that to say, it is very hard. I think if you're like, if I were like plucked from India and dropped here, it would have been harder. Yeah. But I grew up here, and I almost had to live my whole life as a coalition builder. Yeah. So I actually think my role has come full circle because I'm running a legacy white women organization, white women led organization. Yeah. A legacy white feminist organization, but a one that has been, you know, aggressively pursuing an equity agenda. Like my board of directors put together a roadmap for equity. They decided to hire a diver- chief diversity officer. They wanted to be better in the wake of George Floyd, and they allied themselves with BLM, and they looked around and said, we have a challenge. Like, we need a different, you know, we have an opportunity. We have to bring in different leaders. Yeah. So. When my predecessor, who was amazing, and shepherded them through this process, even though she herself is a white woman, but she was very much involved in this movement and has been very active in the fight against white supremacy herself. When she resigned, they had an opportunity. So I think, you know, I'm a good transitional figure for them. Right. And I can bring all of those experiences into shepherding them to the next um, next big thing.
0: And in many ways, so heartening to hear that these are structural elements that are part of the organization. They've been really strategized to be long-term structural elements that that add that great diversity, that inclusion, those elements in play.
1: Yeah, and you know what? I wouldn't have come otherwise because yeah, we all know the stories of an organization that you know is maybe floundering or having some challenges, and then they bring in a person of color as CEO, and that person is set up to fail. That is, yeah. I was very blessed, but I was also intentional to not set myself up for that. Yeah. And I got to come to an organization that was healthy, that had a good budget, that was had a great staff, yeah. um, and that was intentional about hiring me and what I brought to the
0: table. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, Minnie Timaraju. Stay tuned. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm a Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Lily Singh, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing.
0: Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with Mini Timaraju. Let me ask you one thing, because when you think now about our sort of South Asian American community or Indian American community, immigrant communities in the U.S., there is good momentum and activity and conversation that is sort of in, in different pockets, right, in the college student community, in perhaps people like us who were born and brought up here, but there's still some major blind spots and and some gaps in these communities. How do you address some of those pockets and and how are the conversations going to grow and in some ways you know blossom even further and take take them to be be more organized and, and actually be more transparent and open when it comes to some of these reproductive freedom discussions
1: so you've had you know some guests on your show who are doing some really great innovative work organizing our communities politically yeah um so that's a great start and i think I think it comes down to generational transformation. I think it's going to be folks like your kids who are going to be leading the way. And wherever I go, uh, w- when I meet younger South Asian Americans, they get it. Right. And they're going to be critical to talking to their parents and their grandparents. So we had a. I fl- I was part of a discussion yesterday with API Victory Alliance, which is the C3 arm of the Victory Fund. And it was sort of a midterms debrief. And I was on a panel with a young woman who is a Muslim. American, Bangladeshi-American, you know, queer, her wife is Vietnamese-American, and she was talking about Thanksgiving dinner and how they were having an open discussion with both sides of their family about abortion bans. Right. You know, uh, I mean, like, that would never... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's
0: that's a little (laughs) mind-blowing.
1: Right, but it's how we reach liberation. Yeah. Because, you know, This younger generation, they're bold, they're unapologetic, they are who they are, and they are so, and they're still so deeply loving and caring for their family that they're connected.
0: Right. They're they're almost the passports to having these conversations. Yeah.
1: Our families and our communities are evolving with the times. They 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 are remarkably resilient folks from our communities. And we sometimes second guess or don't give them enough credit for being able to transform.
0: Yeah, no. Do you think that any of these kind of local wins at the community level, at the you know dinner table Thanksgiving level that we're seeing here, do you think that that actually has some global impact? And the way that our community is evolving here has any direct or even indirect impact on what's going on for those communities that are existing globally in the diaspora? who may, in another year or two, be emigrating here.
1: You know, I think it's really hard, on one hand, to organize South Asians or talk at the dinner table, let's be more simple, about abortion, because they're like, huh? But the flip side of it is we don't talk about sex. Yeah. You know, we don't talk about sexuality. We don't talk about intimacy. It's still not considered something to even consider when you're picking a partner. Right. So... So on one hand, it's something that politically is a non-issue in India, but socially and culturally is still, still very repressive. So it's a perfect storm for misinformation, disinformation, like bad decisions. So I, I would like to see in our communities, I would like to see more peer to peer educators, Mm. more open conversations about sex, Yeah, you know, you almost can't get to abortion and birth control if you're just not even willing to acknowledge that your kids are having sex.
0: Right. Right. At least <laughs> let's, let's go to the basics.
1: here. <laughs> right. Let's like just talk about the fact that people have sex, yeah. Um, yeah. your kids, other people's kids, your friends, your
0: peers. I mean, I, I love that, that peer to peer, you know, conversation. And, and that probably is, is probably the, the modus operandi that we have to focus on, which is just going back to the basics. I, I want to, I want to leave with with this. And that is, you know, you're a parent, and you and your husband are raising beautiful twin young boys. And in thinking of the work that you lead, and the values that you're promoting. What are some of the conversations that that you hope to be having with them several years from now, about the work you're doing now?
1: You know, they're almost four, so we have started talking to them a little bit like, you know, what does mama do? What does daddy do? My kids are black, they're adopted. You know, they also have um, little people history on Mahatma Gandhi, Rosa Parks. So when we read those books and there's scenes of marches or sit-ins or, you know, folks leading movements my husband or I will say, Oh, this is sort of like what mama does. You know, remember when mama went to that rally, went, you know, and well, why does she do that? So the best way I've been able to describe it to them if what if a teacher says, what does mama do? You can say she's an advocate. Her job is to advocate. Her job is to help other people do the things that they should be allowed to do to be happy, to live their fullest lives. I mean you you you're a pediatrician how much of this are they absorbing? I don't know. Well, uh, don't know. <laughs> in a,
0: in a few years, in let's say 5 to 10 years, when you reflect back on the work you're doing now, what do you hope to share with them about this time?
1: That it's just not okay that they have fewer rights than I have than I had growing up. Yeah. And I will do everything in my power to fight to make sure they have as many rights. I need them to have more. Rights should expand. They should not retract. And my whole job as a parent is to give them as much opportunity as possible. And part of that is to advocate for the best possible society, the safest society, the most equal society that they can live in. And that's our, that's my whole mission. So I don't separate what I do from nine to five from being their mom or yeah. being my parents' kid, right, or from being a partner to my husband
0: you know all of us as parents uh want to feel optimistic about the future, and we want, want to fight hard for all those things, but going forward for twenty twenty three what makes you optimistic in this work
1: so my I jokingly started calling myself the optimist in chief of my team <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because we had a rough year, you know, yeah. Roe fell, right. 17 and Bush It's bad out there. Yeah. But I was like, we can do this. We can win. I um, was the per- probably the only person on my team who thought we could win the house of representatives yeah. and we came real close. So I'm very optimistic. I don't think you could be a movement builder or a political person without being an optimist. It's just, you've got to believe in people's ability to change their mind. Yeah. Right. To be flexible, to be open. And if you, that, that takes optimism. So I'm very optimistic. What gives me the most hope and optimism is two things. What we saw in the midterms, the re- repudiation of the extremist GOP in many different ways, not just on abortion, but on democracy, right? All these extremist candidates for se- secretary of state getting defeated, all these progressive attorneys general, you know, sparks of hope in lots of places. Yeah. Um, but most fundamentally, it's the younger generation. Yeah. I spent a lot of time on college campuses this last six months. Um, And we're investing more and more in youth organizing because that's what we want those folks to take over. They are so much smarter than we were. (laughs) (laughs) They are so much more talented. They're political communicators on TikTok and Twitter. And they're doing the most innovative social activism that I've ever seen. And they are just so much faster to get it. And they are not full of self-doubt that yeah. we were, they're so confident. And I, God, it makes me almost envious. I wish I was that confident, right? Like, I'm not sure I'm that confident now. So they are really leading the way for our, for us as progressives across the board. Yeah. And I don't wanna put burden on them. My job is to get them as resourced and supported as possible, not to put the burden on them, but to uplift them and then get out of the way. So they give me hope and optimism.
0: Well, Minnie, we can't thank you enough for being a lighthouse for, for so many. And on yes. top of that, you know, guiding and paving the way for so much that's going on right now. Thank you so much for, for this and such a great treat to reconnect with you. I hope we can do it again.
1: I would love that. And not just when I'm having like potty training issues with my kids.
0: We'll talk about that too. Uh... Okay, everyone, so remember that just like in life, practice, praise, and patience are essential for toilet training. Please check out more about Minnie and her work at NARAL at ProChoiceAmerica.org. And congratulations also to Georgia Senator Reverend Warnock. Cheers for another six years. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darnika.